Well, hello there. I'm Dr. Kate, your host for today. And today we've got an awesome episode for you with Laura Kudari. Laura is the author of Lifting Heavy Things. It's an incredible book about the power that powerlifting can have to help you heal from mental health issues, including trauma and PTSD. Now, if you've never stepped foot in a gym, this episode is actually especially for you. Before Laura became a powerlifting coach or even a powerlifter, she was someone who had a hard time with going to the gym. If you've ever felt like you can't exercise or powerlift because you'll feel like you don't belong, stick through this episode and you'll feel so much differently at the end. No matter where you are in your fitness journey, movement is a tool that you can use to feel better in your body. Laura's gonna tell you how. Before we get started, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness. No need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you're a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create your free account today. While you're there, you can also try out our latest tools like the meal plan generator and lab shops, which make practicing functional medicine easier than ever. So cool. Now let's start the show. Laura Kudari, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I am so thrilled you're here. I fell in love with your work after I read your book, lifting heavy things years ago. And I have to say, as a trauma-informed clinician, I loved reading your book because it was therapeutic. This is the first book I've read about recovering from trauma that actually felt like I was healing while I read it. I know that was really intentional on your part. Can you tell us, why did you write this book? And also, why did you choose to write it the way you did? I'm glad you felt that way because that was my end goal. I put a lot of effort into that. The book was an extension of my own mission. When I got into the work of what I call trauma-informed personal training, I had not been a personal trainer before. It was something I took on to push this as a way of approaching fitness, offering an alternative. And I was feeling a lot of pushback when I just talked about it as like a gem rat client. I was like, fine, I'm going to get into the industry and help carve out a space for this. Then the reason why was I wanted other people to have this thing besides what I was figuring out for myself. It was really important to me to share it. I have a background actually in nonprofit management and strategic planning. I think I always have this very mission-driven way of looking at the world. One of my big goals was to increase access to what I call trauma-informed personal training and what we'll be talking about a little bit more. And access, a lot of time when people hear that, they think like making it affordable. But this wasn't even something that many people were doing. I found one person who I could clearly find who was offering this explicitly in Toronto. And it wasn't something I was finding even here in New York City where I am. And I just wanted it to be a thing people were talking about. That means even letting people know it's an option. And yeah, I had social media. I've never been a social media maven and I am very comfortable writing. I was like, one way to increase information is just this is something you can ask for. This is a way you can look at movement was to write a book about it. For me, in all of my studying, which I did, all of this grows out of my own experience, all of my studying that I did, all of the reading that I did, one thing that I found really distressing was that 
many of the trauma trainings, many of the books, many of the things out there actually aren't trauma-informed. Many people who are just folks looking for answers, looking to help themselves, are trying to access this information that can be pretty triggering and overwhelming. When you're triggered and you're overwhelmed, you cannot process new information. I wanted a book that took into account the nature of reading about trauma as somebody who's living with trauma. I brought that trauma-informed lens that I bring to work with people into the actual writing of the book. And my hope was just to really connect with readers. That's a place where I found a lot of connection is within books. I really wanted people to feel that they were connecting to me, even though it isn't synchronous, we're not doing it at the same time. They're hopefully able to take in what I'm saying. And that means really being aware of how what I'm saying may be potentially hard to hear and overwhelming. We try to structure the book to help people take care of themselves while learning about trauma and while learning about maybe some things that might help them. It's brilliant and revolutionary and really needed in this field. And I'm so glad you designed the book this way. And my hope is today's conversation will also feel that way. If you're listening and you're like, weightlifting and trauma. So interesting. I want to know about this. You are in the right place. We are going to teach you how to use this to heal. And we also want to invite you. Some of this conversation is going to resonate for you and you're going to find yourself thinking and processing. It might bring up some memories. It might bring up some powerful thoughts. Hit pause. You do not have to listen to this all in one session. This is here forever. You could come back forever and really use this as a therapeutic experience for yourself. Maybe take it a chunk at a time. And we also want to hear from you at the end. Both Laura and I are online. You can let us know what you thought. And we really do want to know because we want this to be medicine for you. We want it to be something that gives you a resource that helps you heal. With that, Laura, let's dive in. Why lifting heavy things? That was what worked for me. And like I said, all of my work grew out of my own experience. And I will just flash forward. I had been somebody who came late to any physical activity, exercise willingly. Of course, we had PE and we had all those things. But I lived a long time with chronic pain and I would rather have the pain than show up at a gym. But things shifted in my life. My priorities shifted. I decided I was going to show up. I've been told strength training would help me not be in pain anymore. I was not even in my 30s yet. And I was like, okay. I started strength training at 27 and I didn't find a sport, which was strength sports until I was 34. And prior to that, I was cutting gym class and smoking cigarettes in the park and like very anti-structured physical activity. But I found that it helped me. It did help. It helped me get out of pain. And I liked that feeling. And eventually it was actually a very empowering journey, which I definitely talk about in the book. Then after I had already learned all of this beautiful stuff about how strength training helped me manage my chronic pain, helped me feel better about myself and my sense of self-worth, helped me feel comfortable taking up space in a place that I never even wanted to enter before, and just made me more confident because I felt physically safe in my body. I felt strong in my body. I felt good in my body. And then I experienced an acute trauma outside of the gym, and I developed PTSD and ultimately it shifted how I was in the gym because how I was in my body. I didn't feel safe in my body. And I became leveled by PTSD, both just emotionally and also physically. I sustained a very severe back injury. And in trying to recover, I really wanted to be able to use strength training because that had made me feel so good and safe once before. But it was so hard to move because 
any sort of physical exertion was potentially triggering for me. And I was like, okay. And I started to learn more about different, just by chance, just trying, being the nerd, stuck in bed, researching. And I learned about trauma-informed yoga and I had a yoga practice in the past. And I was like, okay, let me try this. And trauma-informed yoga is wonderful. It is proven to be effective, but nothing is for everybody. And I found it very triggering. There is something about the empowerment that I got and that other people get from being able to pick up heavy objects with control and put them down that makes you get in touch with your own sense of agency. It allows you to feel your body working in a way that if it's resonating with you, feels good and will allow you to feel a little safer. For me, I realized my way back into my body was not going to be through yoga. It was a too still of a practice for me to feel safe. It was through strength training, which meant figuring out how to make that happen because I couldn't find a trauma-informed practitioner. It's what I did and it really helped me. And I knew like, yeah, plenty of people were getting help through yoga or other somatic practices. But I also knew just from being in the gym so much and eventually as I became a trainer and I began to coach and I began to talk to more and more people, there were plenty of people who this was going to resonate much more than yoga. Who cares how you get it? If you get it gardening, if you get it brushing your teeth, if you get it doing yoga or Pilates or barbell sports, whatever it is, or spec riding, who cares? I wanted to be like, this is a different way. This is a different modality to get the same therapeutic results. We can approach weightlifting the same way we can approach it. And what I started to realize was we were, I was able to apply models from practices like somatic experiencing, which are body-based tools that many talk therapists use to help people process the physical aspects of trauma. Because use many of those models, they easily translated to models that you would see to design a weightlifting strength training program. It was a natural fit. And lifting heavy things, it is in fact a metaphor. My book has been translated into Chinese, which is exciting. I was using Google Translate to understand an article about this. And Google Translate translated the Chinese translation of lifting heavy things. We'll take this with a grain of salt as picking up heavy objects, putting down burdens. And I was like, they're not wrong. <laughs> that is what I'm saying. Lifting heavy things. You mentioned a term somatic experiencing, and that term is used along with embodied movement frequently in your book. Can you walk our listeners through what do those things mean and what do they have to do with therapy and healing? Somatic experiencing is a tool or a modality that some therapists, but also other therapeutic and wellness practitioners may be trained in to very specifically help people work with and unpack and process trauma. It is a practice that has its roots in more traditional forms of therapy as well as body-based therapy. And it requires people who are using it, part of it is just being able to practice, being able to get into the body. Because what you're doing is you're starting to listen to your body. How does your body maybe want to move? The idea is rooted in Peter Levine, who created it. This idea of Defining trauma as a, if we're talking about an acute trauma in this case, a moment where something was too much or too fast for your nervous system to process. And based on the idea that your nervous system is trapped in a little bit of a loop where that moment was, it might have been 
if an accident, a lot of the time, whether you have a work accident or a car accident, that's sudden and people will be trapped in a startle response. And it's how to help people move through that startle response so they can finish processing it, even if it happened 20 years ago. It was the modality that my therapist used with me. And it is the modality that I became trained in. And it is a very powerful tool that usually involves some little movements or a little breath work. It's not an exercise practice at all. It's noticing does anything in your body want to move right now? You know, and if maybe you're really in a state where you are overwhelmed and no, actually my response is a freeze response. Can we find a spot that maybe wants to wiggle just a little bit? And this practice of just starting to come out of these trauma response states. Embodied movement is a big key to that. And one of the things I say about all these trauma-informed movement practices is they give you tools to use so you can even do somatic experiencing practicing trying to come into your body while under stress. Exercise and movement, but you're looking to stress your body out a little bit gently, but that's what's happening. You're breathing hard. You're feeling the burn, as Jane Fonda says. The listeners maybe did a Jane Fonda type or like a jazzercise type workout where you like, and it's fun. You're moving around, but like, oh yeah, it's hard. That is actually a stress. It's fun. You're having a good time, but your body is under stress. The idea of being able to practice staying in your body when it's a little bit hard like that and noticing how it feels to move, noticing how it feels inside your body to move, notice where it's burning. Notice when you're like, oh, actually, I think in something where you're doing some mobility work, that stretch is enough. That's the end and not pushing past it. Just learning how to start listening to what your body is telling you. That is a practice that I refer to in the book a lot and talk about as embodied movement. And I want to talk to the person at home who's thinking, I don't want to be in my body at all. Like, what do you mean? (laughs) Why is that part of healing for some folks? Yeah. And actually a lot of people might not want to be in their body and 100%. I hear you. I get it. It's really hard. And for many of us, not being in your body, and you might heard that called as dissociation, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a coping tool that we need sometimes. If you're ever bored in a class and daydreaming, that is a mild form of dissociation. It's the same thing. Having the skill set to be able to come into your body when you are experiencing something that might be uncomfortable. The wonderful thing about having that ability available to you if you want to use it or need to use it is that you are getting information that hasn't been processed by all these filters that are in our brain. Like, I should be able to stretch deeper or I should be okay letting this person this close to me. There are just a million different voices, right? I always talk about like the boardroom in my head. I have a lot of people sitting at that table and they represent all of these different messages I've gotten over time. Things I tell myself all the time. Just taking a moment to separate, actually, what is the physical sensation I'm having from all of these interpretations that come from all of the people in our life, meaning and otherwise, who have said things to us over time that create a narrative that actually isn't about what you are feeling. And it's learning how to be able to suss that out or practicing being able to do work, maybe if you are processing in a conversation, either with loved ones or a wellness practitioner, a therapist, being able to check in with your body to share with them actually, 
this is where I'm feeling it in my body. Maybe that means I'm experiencing this emotion or that emotion and being curious as opposed to that top-down processing. I talk about we can't really think our feelings. We have to feel our feelings. It needs to be feelings of like, ah, this is what I am experiencing in my body. What could that mean? Not the other way around. We use the term mind, body, spirit so often when we talk about healing, but so often the body gets left out of the conversation when we're talking about healing from something that might have happened to you that was hard, that had maybe psychological effects. A lot of times we're not including the body in the therapies we do. We're not saying, how do you feel today? Where is there tension? And to me, it felt so empowering and almost like a coming home. What clients experience when they finally get in touch with like, how do I feel? What do I think? Not what have I been told to do by society my whole life? And really reclaiming a lot of autonomy. Yes. In that process. That's the big thing. That's what we're looking for. Knowing our basic, being able to take care of our very basic needs, having a sense of agency over our lives in the sense of, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I need to use the restroom. (laughs) These are all signals that we get from our body. So many of us are disconnected from our body, whether we're talking about trauma and dissociative behavior because of that, or it's they're just the stress of our lives demands us to override these signals sometimes. And that happens. No questions. There are times where you have to work really hard and not get enough sleep. There are times when I know a lot of teachers with the needing to use the restroom thing. You can't. You cannot leave the students. What do you do to address the fact that, yes, life is going to bring you circumstances where in order to get through the thing, whether it's a big thing or a little thing, you need to disconnect from your body. But then you also need to be able to come back to your body when you don't need to be doing those things, when the project's done so you don't need to stay up so late. How can you quickly reconnect and be like, oh yeah, that's the signal that I'm tired. And that is what the practice of embodied movement is about, which is just like taking time to regularly come back into your body and practice what it feels like to be in it so that if you had to turn it off, unintentionally, of course, to get through something. When it's over, you can look around and be like, ah, okay, now I can turn it back on and prioritize putting myself first. You can only know these things. And that's the agency we're talking about. That's the autonomy. I know what I need right now. You can only do that by being in your body. Now, the same thing goes for larger things that we think of as the things we might talk about in therapy. Boundaries is the big one that I always go to. You cannot know your boundaries if you cannot feel them. You might realize after you've had a boundary infraction because you had a strong response, whether there's a pattern that maybe you've gotten far enough in your work that you recognize like, oh yeah, I have this pattern every time somebody pushes past my boundaries. But in order to catch where that boundary is, so maybe you can change the response, you need to be able to feel your boundary. And that is something we feel in our bodies. The message part in the brain only happens after it's been too late. In the body is how we get the signal when it's occurring in the moment. I want to say this and then let's just have you react and edit and tell me what you think. But to me, one of the most healing parts of powerlifting and weightlifting and coming home to your body is feeling like you have your own back in a way that 
I know I didn't really experience before I started powerlifting and I hear a lot of my clients say the same thing and you're nodding. When I say that, yeah, what comes up for you? Again, this is the picking up heavy objects, putting down burdens. Sometimes we can't put down the burdens. Sometimes we need to really remind ourselves, actually, I'm strong enough to hold these burdens for now, or I have other strong people in my life who can help me hold these burdens, but we've actually got to hold them. And I am talking about emotional burdens. The language we use, they weigh on us. When it's hard, I can still hold more weight than I realized physically. And when you are maybe even training in a group and you realize that you have people in your life who in the gym help you, they spot you, they help you hold those physical heavy things. I don't know the mechanism. I know what you're experiencing, what other people talk about experiencing. It translates and you're like, I can hold my body weight on my back in the gym. I can hold all of these things that are going on in my life right now. And I also know I can have help. And I know I can put them down. I think that's the other part. Like we put them down controlled. You don't have to drop it. You don't have to throw Like you, in the gym, you might see somebody throw a weight off their back if they get stuck under it. We learn how to do that safely, but you don't always have to do that. Maybe you realize, you know, it's hard, but I can actually get up and put this down. And the same thing, like this is a hard situation. I want to throw it off my body, but I have it in me to actually put it down in a way that will be constructive and not set any relationships or relationship to the self back. Autonomy, again, so cool. You do a really good job in your book of talking about, this is on page 27. You have this picture of a window of tolerance and then underneath it says hypoarousal and it shows a little valley. And then above the window of tolerance, it says hyperarousal and it shows a peak, like a mountain peak. What is this graphic and why is it so important for this conversation we're having? The window of tolerance is a commonly used model, although there are other things that are being presented that are less linear. They're a little more complex, but they're actually a little more accurate. But the window of tolerance is a model of nervous system activation. It is good enough for our purposes as we are not neuroscientists. (laughs) we are people in the gym (laughs) but it's this idea of it's a way to think about your nervous system capacity at any given moment we all have nervous systems and our nervous systems all have a certain capacity for what we call arousal which is like stimulation and all of us throughout the day our nervous system goes up and down just naturally in how much arousal is experiencing You've been sleeping. Maybe you wake up naturally with the sun and the birds. So it's going to slowly increase. Or maybe you wake up with a really horrible alarm that like sends you flying. Either way, at different rates, your nervous system arousal is going to go up. And you might notice there are patterns in your life. A lot of people, the post-lunch slump, they're sleepy, their nervous systems go down. And then things happen throughout the day that maybe you get news or you have an uncomfortable interaction with a boss or you have a wonderful interaction with a boss or a friend or a family member, all of these things, the way we feel moves up and down. We feel energized. We feel anxious, which also feels a lot like excited. These are more aroused. We feel very sleepy. We feel spacey. We tune out. We zone out. These are going dipping down into less than ideal states of arousal, hypoarousal. 
But we all do it all the time. And it's how much range we have. Where is our baseline and how much capacity do we have for excitement? And how much capacity do we have for feeling really tired and sluggish and low without all of a sudden feeling overwhelmed? Without it being, you're like excited and then you're like, oh, wait, this is too much. Okay, you've crossed from within your window of tolerance of like, I'm excited, I'm excited to, oh, this is too much excitement. That you've gone into a place of hyper arousal. Even if it's something like excitement, like I am an introvert. I'm a social introvert. I love a wedding. And like at the end of a wedding night, I'm like, oh my God, I'm totally overwhelmed. I've gone past my window and I need to go take care of myself. That's okay. And the same can be said for the other direction. You're really dragging. You've realized you're trying to read a book on trauma and you cannot, you like cannot focus. You are probably dipping down into that hypo arousal state and that's okay. You're just going to pull yourself back into with various different exercises and stuff. And what's cool about it is this capacity, which is what the window is about. The window is what is my capacity to move through these states can, will with trauma often become smaller. You can't handle as much variety in how aroused your nervous system gets, but it can be widened through various somatic practices and the bringing the body into the healing work, even if it's an emotional trauma, that's where you start to do the thing where you increase your capacity to tolerate all of these things that affect your mood and how your body physically feels so that it goes from like, yeah, I'm uncomfortable, but I'm here. I can be here and there's discomfort. Your ability for that increases if your window of tolerance increases. I like to talk about it much more though, less tolerance and more capacity. And that's the one thing I do want to address, even though I work with that window of tolerance model, is you want to get to a place where you can tolerate it. But actually what you really want to do is to think about it as a place of increasing capacity so you can not just tolerate, but actually have a full range of experience. There was a trend to talk about tolerance and being able to tolerate these things. And people I think are moving more now to this idea of it. rather than thinking about let's get it to a place where I can tolerate it. Yes, that is part of it. Then let's continue to think about it actually continually increasing my capacity. So I cannot just get back to where I was, but maybe even get to a place of thriving. That's why it was so exciting for my folks to learn like, oh, cool, how do I widen my window of tolerance? Because I want to be able to stay intentional and caring and in alignment with who I am, even when hard things happen. How do I train to get there? That would be like the exciting point of the conversation for us. What was the conversation, yeah, you'd have with your clients? I think the idea is what we are looking to do and what folks who want to try this way of even just bring a little bit of this into maybe an existing practice that they have, strength training or something, any sort of physical activity, is to practice finding the edges of the challenge in whatever the modality is. We're going to talk about strength training because that's my thing. But how do you know when you have had enough of a movement of taxing a particular muscle or group of muscles? practicing feeling what that edge is. And if you can spend more time, which can you do this slowly, and the more time you can spend practicing being at the edges of what's hard, essentially, in your workout, staying in your body while doing it, because that's the only way you'll know if it's hard. If you're reaching a boundary of 
enough. What is enough? Enough is a boundary. Staying in your body so you can notice, okay, this is hard. And I have now had enough. (laughs) And then pausing there, letting your body rest. Like in strength training, we do sets. We do reps and sets. You might do eight repetitions of a movement for three sets. You do your eight. You're trying to find a weight that is hard enough so that you are working, but that you can complete each rep with good form. But those last two, you're like, oh, that was really hard, but you're not overwhelmed. Then you rest. 30 seconds, maybe. Some people hear rest and they think a long time. I mean, it varies person to person. It might be 30 seconds, it might be a minute, it might be three minutes. There's so many variables, but you give yourself the rest. You practice noticing, okay, this is enough rest for me to do that again. And to spend a little time at our edge, that is what actually caprices our capacity. And how that translates then, if you are in a situation where you want to stay intentional and it's hard, because you are approaching your edge with a person or a situation, you have now practiced hanging out on that edge for a while and being like, this is hard, but I can still be here and allow yourself to keep that intentionality. That is one of the reasons why I think strength training translates so beautifully is it gives you both what we would call the titration aspect, which is that set rest of practicing stimulating our nervous system, yeah, with reps as opposed to talking about hard things, but it's the same nervous system and it's being stimulated and then giving it a break and then leaning back into that edge and giving it a break. And that's what's going to slowly widen your window. The things that previously caused you to move into a fight flight, you're going to be able to stay with it so much easier and be like, ah, I want to respond differently this time. I feel like this book is part of the change that we're seeing now. To me, it's such a good representation of how do you use movement? How do you use your athleticism to become an ally for yourself and to, right? And to just like really own your own sense of identity empowerment and your wants. One of my favorite therapists, her name is Lisa Damore, talks a lot about how we live in a society where where we're primed to always think about being desirable and being desirable and being palatable and being what everyone else wants to the point where we actually don't have a lot of people standing up and teaching young folks to think about what they want. What do they want to eat? What do they need? Do they need to sleep? I see this cultural shift in the way that we're talking about helping people heal and come home to themselves. And I think that this book is such a big part of that. I'm very grateful you wrote this. It's like a huge part of the conversation. I love that you said it's important to you that people understand how to fit this into their lives wherever they are right now. Maybe they're not ready to go to a gym. 100%. Tell us why and then what would they do if they're not ready to go to a gym? The reason that I want people to put this into their life as it is now is because it's so powerful. It's a big ask to ask anyone, no matter what's going on in their plate, to cultivate a new habit. On top of everything else. Yes. And if you are somebody who is in the act of doing some very big pieces of therapeutic work, now all of a sudden cultivating a new health habit, let's call it, or a new movement habit or whatever you want to call it, it's just hard. It's hard when you are game for it. There's a whole science of studying habit forming because it is 
complicated. There are a lot of factors. It's not just about, do you have willpower or not? There's so many steps to it. If you're like, oh yeah, okay. I like this idea. I like what these two are talking about, but I don't want to go to the gym or I don't want to lift weights. I don't feel good there, but I think I would be down to do my walk that I do this way maybe, or I work out at home and I have these small weights and she's talking, she's got a kettlebell on the cover of her book. Like, does that have to be a kettlebell? Because I have five pound weights. <laughs> great. Five pound weights. Great. Whatever your practice is, if you have any sort of movement practice, and we can talk about that in a second for folks who are sitting there like, I don't have a movement practice. We'll get to you. But if you have something that you're doing that you consider a movement practice, in the book, I talk you through how to really start thinking about movement in a way, and you can do this with what you're doing already. It's not just lifting weights. And if you do, now maybe your person is like, no, I actually really like the idea of lifting weights, but I'm not going to go to the gym, but I have these dusty weights in my house. Okay. We're going to help you figure out, there are ways you can figure out like, how can I set this up in my home? So I still feel safe enough and I've made space. I think I have it. I think I could cultivate this new habit if I'm gentle about it and not making myself go to the gym. And then if you're a person who's, I don't have a movement practice, I don't want a movement practice, I don't know what you're talking about, I have a whole other set of questions for you, which is think about what you do in a given day and maybe really walk yourself through your day. Like wake up in the morning. When I wake up in the morning, I generally get up and I go use the restroom. And maybe now, right now, I'm trying to cultivate a new habit. <laughs> I sit in meditation. We're day three. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> And I sit on my meditation cushion, whatever. Maybe I feed the cat and I'm feeding the cats. I'm brushing my teeth. I'm unloading the dishwasher. Folks are walking to work or biking to work, whatever you're doing. The fact of the matter is, is all of these things are forms of movement. Brushing your teeth is a form of movement. You are using your body to brush your teeth. You can actually bring these same principles to little tasks that you do throughout the day or maybe a big task that you do a couple times a week and you're still getting that practice of staying in your body while moving around and starting to practice in a way that will hopefully feel more safe to you than for whatever reason, you're like, no, I don't want to do the exercise thing. Great. Okay, let's honor that. Cool. You don't want to do the exercise thing. Good for you. Don't do it. Yeah. And that's part of what this is. We talked about the no. What is the no? What is the enough? Maybe my enough is no, I don't want to at zero is enough. Because the only way it's going to get sticky is if it feels like it's aligning with actually where you are, what feels safe and what feels good. We don't need to push in and overwhelm and push through and do these things to show ourselves anything. Because this is a practice to take care of yourself. Be self-compassionate. You really can bring this in a bunch of ways. I think the majority of my readers are people who are either interested in creating a movement practice and there is an exercise in the book to help you start to do that in a way that will align with where you're at in your life right now, whether it's emotionally and feelings of safety and also logistically, like what is your budget? What is your time budget? And then there are folks who already have existing movement practices and they're like, I would love to anchor this in my practice already. It maps it out for them as well. You take them through some steps. Can you share one or two of those with us? One of the things, if you haven't read Laura's book, which I know you're going to do after this podcast, she has little sections of the book that are called Take Action, which I like because so much of this is theoretical and you're like, okay, I love this, but now I have to go pick up my kids and you forget and you move on. Helping people put this into action immediately is so, so helpful. What's one step 
you would recommend to somebody who's like, okay, I can't go to the gym, but I do want to do something. Okay. So we're at the like, I can't go to the gym, but I want to do something. We don't even know what the something is. The first question is literally, what are some things you enjoy? And what kind of music do you enjoy? What sports did you play? Maybe even badly as a kid. Do you like to dance around your kitchen? But you start to think about all these different ways you are with your body that you find enjoyable and then try to translate onto a movement practice and a modality. It might be like, actually, I used to take ballet and I loved it, but for whatever reason, my mom made me stop when I was 12 or whatever. And maybe something like bar would feel really good to you or even something like Pilates, which attracts a lot of former dancers might be a good cultural fit and it might feel nice in your body. And there's so many ways to move our bodies. What are some things you enjoy and how does that translate? It might mean doing some research about what's out there, what kind of classes are out there, what kind of options are out there. And if it's something really fairly traditional, like I want to lift weights, like you realize, like for me, that was the thing I had to do it for my back, but that was the one, well, that and swimming But as a teenager, I just did not want to actually put on a swimsuit and get my hair wet in the winter. (laughs) But the strength training was always something that was really accessible to me. If I had to do gym class, which I did have to do, if strength weight room was an option, I would take it. And I didn't think of myself as somebody who was showing up to work out. I was thinking of myself as somebody who was showing up because I had to because it was gym class. I could show up to that without feeling a sense of dread. Now, that's not a rave review, but... That's some low-hanging fruit. Okay, this is the thing you can do without dread. Let's start there. It played to my strengths, which was I was just strong without trying. That's another way to think about it. What are your strengths? Strengths are things you enjoy and strengths are things you're good at. Both of these things. That's a place to start. That's for the folks who don't know what they want to do. And if you do know what you want to do, then you look at your different options. If it is something like strength training, what are the venues available to you? You don't need a lot of space if you want it to be something in your house. I know people, I'm in New York City a lot of the time. I know people who have, especially a few years ago when we were under a lockdown, people doing full kettlebell workouts in their New York City kitchens. Okay, New York City kitchens are big enough for one person. Okay, (laughs) you don't need a lot of space. You don't need a lot of equipment. And you can start to think about what are the options available to me? What are the gyms near me? What day am I going to research this? What day am I then going to go into the places that websites look good to do further research? Like pick those days, put them in your calendar. That might be helpful for accountability. Get an accountability buddy. But this idea of starting to think about, I think that's the real trick. There's a planning aspect that we often skip. And planning means looking at what aligns with who you are and what you like to do. And planning also means literally like, okay, when is a free time in my calendar that I can give some time to this project? It is a project. And I think if it's really giving yourself the grace to take it step by step before you actually start to do the working out, gives you enough time to prepare both the logistics and also the emotional and the mental preparation that needs to come with whatever it is that you're going to need to overcome to show up and do this thing for yourself. I love it. If you're writing this down, guys, this is a great journaling exercise. And I think you have these questions in your book, Laura. I do. I want to encourage the folks at home who maybe the only time you've ever planned a workout routine is when you had some kind of aesthetic goal in mind. 
this is distinctly separate from that. In my opinion, this is like, how do I want to be able to feel strength and centeredness and maybe even joy and play and fun is what should be on the top of this journal prompt. And that's where you start. What type of movement feels good for me? This is going to be very hard if you're used to being like, what type of 30-day shred am I going to do to lose weight or whatever, which is like what a lot of people have that experience with movement as they have only ever used it as a tool to change themselves, beat themselves up, measure themselves against. This is so distinctly different and an act of self-care. When Laura's saying, plan it in, how am I going to find a gym? Not plan it in your calendar because this is the day you must do it. But no, when is the time in the week where it would actually feel good for you to sit down and even think about this? It's such a different and much more self-compassionate way of thinking about moving. What conversation do you have with your clients who come from more of a background of like, I've only ever done movement through a very specific lens of trying to change myself? One of the things, and I do address this in the book, but the thing that kept me out of the gym until I was just in constant pain and wanted to have a carrier pregnancy, really, was that was the message I got. I was a chubby kid. I was picked on school. Nothing. I was just like that kid. I was definitely, it turns into bullying later on. I was taught all sorts of things by very well-meaning adults in my life that the answer was to change me by losing weight. People will like you better. You'll be safer. The sort of safety in the weight loss and you lose weight by diet and exercise. And I hated that messaging. And I also hated myself. I had a lot of self-loathing about my body because of that messaging. None of it was coming from people who meant any harm. This was all coming from places of love. And yet... It was incredibly harmful. And for me, it became dire. I walked around knowing that strength training would help me for seven years before I actually did it because that was the message I had come from and it made me so averse. I tend to be drawn to things that buck the system for a reason. And for me to then go work out became equated. I equated it with well, then people will like me, then it'll be safe, then I'll get the things I want, then I'll get the love I want. And I was like, but that's BS. People should just like me, whatever. And it was complicated. It wasn't that straightforward because I had all my own feelings. I'm coming at it from that place for sure. And the only way for me to start doing it, and I've been strength training regularly since 2006. It's a long time. (laughs) Like the way it became a thing that stuck finally was that I actually tossed, it had nothing to do with aesthetics. I separated it. And my body has been all sorts of shapes and sizes since then. My body has looked a variety of different ways. Some of it related to the fitness, like the working out type aspect, and some of it not. But overall, I feel better in my body. I feel better in my spirit. I have a much higher sense of self-worth, no matter how I present. And I can speak to that right now. I actually am in a place in my life where I am a larger size than I maybe have ever been. I still have a greater sense of self-worth. And that size has nothing to do with the strength training. It has to do with other factors, which are for a different podcast, maybe a different book. 
But I feel good about myself in a way that I didn't necessarily feel, the way I definitely did not feel about myself, even at times when I was lean and got there through diet and exercise type things to change my body to look a different way. I want to just highlight here that you have a lot of specialized training that makes you able to really fluently talk about this, but also to guide your clients using a very scientific approach. A lot of people think about powerlifting, and maybe we should define it here, but a lot of people think about powerlifting or Olympic lifting, and they think, I've seen a really huge seven foot tall dude throwing like thousands of pounds above his head one time on TV. And that's powerlifting to me. What I expect when I would walk into a powerlifting gym is that it would just be all those types of dudes and that I would have to do that my first day. Can you explain to folks, (laughs) what are we actually talking about? What is powerlifting? What happens when somebody would come to see a trainer like you? We talk about powerlifting, we talk about weightlifting, we talk about lifting weights. I will try and sum those up for you because they are different things and people, I know one bodybuilding, I'll throw that into because people conflate all of these things. Okay, lifting weights is something that maybe it's not a sport. It's like you go into the free weight section or you use the machines and you do some strength training movements. That is generally when I'm talking about lifting weights, that is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about doing exercises with free weights, barbells, kettlebells, dumbbells, free weights are dumbbells, even, or body weight type things, resistance bands, and like the machines with cables and stuff. Then weightlifting, when people talk about weightlifting in terms of a sport, and that can get confusing because sometimes people aren't clear in their eyes, but like Olympic style or Olympic weightlifting is what it's called. I say Olympic style because when I say I used to do Olympic weightlifting, people who don't know think, I mean, I was in the Olympics. And no, it's definitely not in the Olympics. I get zero. I have zero medals, even locally. Olympic weightlifting is what you see in the Olympics. When you see what you talked about, the huge guy catching the weight over that movement of getting the weight from the ground, either up to here and overhead or into a bottom of a squat overhead are Olympic weightlifting. That is a sport. Powerlifting is also a sport. It's less explosive and it's not something in the Olympics. It's being able to do one very heavy squat, one very heavy bench press, and one very heavy deadlift. And deadlift is when you pick a weight up off the floor and stand up with it with your arms still by your sides. And then bodybuilding. Some people will say, oh, I'm doing some bodybuilding and they are lifting weights and they are. Bodybuilding is also a sport when you take it to that level of building muscle. And also there is a component of dietary component generally to get very, very lean. And the goal is there are different levels of how muscular you present, but the sport is being visibly very muscular in a balanced way. And it's an aesthetic sport. So somebody contacted trauma-informed strength trainer your strength coach or a personal trainer, what they should expect to do is come to the gym and there is a program that will be designed based on where they are. You talked about this big guy putting this big weight over his head. He started with the bar. We all start with the bar. For some people, you start with separate, you don't even start with the bar. Actually, we all start with a dowel or PVC pipe is really what it is, all right? Everybody starts there. No one, if you're walking into an environment where they are asking you to immediately, without really taking you through proper form with basically no weight, 
start picking up something that is essentially too heavy for you to do it safely, you're not getting proper instruction. You are hopefully walking into an environment where they teach you with the bar, they teach you with a dowel, they teach you with a PVC if it's barbell. If it's dumbbells, like I was saying before, if all you have is five pound weights, those are still heavy things. Chances are you have five pound weights because five pounds is heavy for you. And for some movements, five pounds are heavy for me. It depends on the movement. It's relative, especially if you're in personal training, your trainer should be working with you to be selecting weights and movements that are appropriate for where you're at. And they generally determine that by doing an assessment where it'll be like an interview and then they'll have you take you through some movements and see how you do with them and then decide what's the right starting place for you. And so what I was saying about being a coach in this gym, no matter who came in, unless they already have a history of competing or they had their own coach or whatever. Oh, you want to learn Olympic weightlifting? I don't care how athletic you are. It's like you are going to go through this program. We make sure that you have all the foundations in place before I send you over to the other side of the gym where you start catching that bar over your head. You've made it easy for folks to find someone who is trained in trauma-sensitive or trauma-informed lifting techniques. How would someone use the resources you've created to find that? That was part of access. It was fairly new, but there were people who were getting trained, people who were doing it, whether they're doing programs or like me, had some backgrounds. For me, I went into the somatic experiencing training and combined it with the training as a personal trainer and then as a corrective exercise specialist. There are plenty of people who come, they are therapists, they're trauma therapists who then also pair that with personal training background. There's all sorts of ways. And then there are people who are now going through formal programs that exist. Trauma-Informed Weightlifting is an organization that offers one such program and Hope Ignited is another one. There are more and more people, right? Which that was important for access because I wasn't going to keep it all to myself. Even if I wanted to, like how many people could I help in a week or an hour a person? So it was always part of my mission to be able to connect people with others. And one of the things I came up with was just a directory of trauma-informed practitioners who offer remote services. And this actually started during the first few months of COVID to help people, pair people with people who are offering these remote sessions. But since then, and like what we were talking about, one of the options, like I want to do this, but I want to stay in my home. This is an option. On my website, is under resources and it's called Movement at Home. It's also backslash referrals, lorcadaria.com slash referrals. And Those are people that have been crowdsourced and you can look at their profiles and see if there may be a good fit for you and reach out to you. And they talk about their different, all sorts of modalities. It's not just strength training. That said, those other two organizations that I mentioned, both of them, Trauma Informed Weightlifting and Hope Ignited, both of them offer directories of practitioners who have been through their programs. Those will be practitioners who are offering in-person and remote possibly, I am thinking. And these are practitioners that's growing in popularity. There are more and more around the world. Wherever you're listening to this, there may be somebody near you. And there's definitely somebody who can do remote services to work with you. I'm so grateful that resource exists. And guys, please take advantage of it. Go check it out and have a conversation with someone. A lot of these trainers offer the ability for you to call them for a few minutes and talk through what you're looking for and get to know them, listen to what they sound like. What's the language that they use? You don't necessarily have to jump in and buy a $1,000 program. You're locked in for life. No, you don't see. This is a lot like choosing a therapist and you can get Laura's book and I recommend reading it before 
you reach out to someone honestly because you'll have shared language with that provider to ask, hey, do you do anything? And you might be new and it's okay, but you might feel like, do anything with embodied movement. If you have the book, you have the language. I think it is actually a really good first step to buy this book first. I highly recommend it to every single person. I also want to just tout that I want to talk about this as medicine. I am very comfortable calling lifting medicine because of the research I have done personally and clinically. We just, for the folks at home, did a trauma-informed powerlifting pilot with the folks at my old practice, which was doing IOP, intensive outpatient therapy for folks with depression and anxiety, different mental health disorders. These folks who most of them had never stepped foot in the gym, signed up for eight weeks of trauma-informed powerlifting. And in the beginning, we had them do questionnaires called PHQ-9 and GAD-7, which are the questionnaires you get at the doctor about depression and anxiety. And it helps us rate how bad are your symptoms. They took that before, and then eight weeks later, they took it again, and everyone improved, which is wild. And they improved significantly to the degree that you would expect with something like a medication or therapy. And for me, knowing that medicine doesn't just come in a pill, I'm very comfortable now saying, oh, yeah, this is medicine. Just because it doesn't come in a pill doesn't mean it's not medicine. It's really, really good for you, and it does truly work. What's the one thing, Laura, if we gave you like a minute or two, just like to speak to somebody who has recently been through something hard, what do you want to say to them about how life can look moving forward or about some next steps they could take that maybe you wish was said to more people in their situation? I think the first thing that I want to say to anybody, you may feel incredibly alone or just like a totally different person. I know I felt like I was a monster because I had a much shorter fuse and no patience. And you are not a monster or a thing and you are not alone. There are other people in your position. And I say that because that was really important for me, the first step in being able to do any of this and go down this road was... I was reading a book that I don't necessarily recommend to everybody, but listeners to this may be interested in The Body Keeps the Score, which is a best-selling book for a reason. But we talk about the trauma-informed approach to writing. It can be very overwhelming. I didn't know that when I read it. And it showed me I felt seen by a book, which is what I'm talking about. I want one of the reasons I felt writing a book would be helpful is because you can be seen by a book. I felt seen by this book. And I also realized I am not permanently changed. I'm not a monster. Something has happened and my brain is functioning differently. And it is correctable or correct feels like a judgy word. I don't want it to have judgment. It doesn't have to stay this way. We can change, right? And in that book, it offered a variety of different body-based approaches to bring this change in. And that's sent me on my journey. And the other thing I want to say is it takes work 100% to show up for yourself and do this sort of thing. And it takes work to find somebody, sometimes not always, hopefully you're fortunate enough that you find somebody who sees you right away and can hear you and can meet you where you are. Sometimes it takes work to find those people, but they are there. There are people out there who can help you, who can be on the journey with you. And for me, my experience and the experience of other people I know is that I actually have a much fuller 
and bigger and meaningful. My days are filled with much more meaningful activity than before all this. I'm not a big silver lining kind of gal. And I don't believe in like, well, everything happens for a reason. I don't feel that way. What I can say my takeaway was like, yeah, that was awful. I am through it. And hey, I've actually made quite a big difference in the world. I'm not just through it, but I'm actually like really living my life the way I want to live my life. I wasn't doing that before. That's a really big deal. I'm so glad we ended with that. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you did the work. I'm so glad that not only did you do the work, but that you've made it accessible for everyone else on the planet. You have made a major difference. I know it personally. I've recommended your book to many of my clients who feel it's made a difference. Thank you so very much for the work you did and that you deserved in healing yourself and how much you're healing the world. I'm so glad you were here with us today. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me and supporting my work. Make sure that you buy Laura's book, Lifting Heavy Things. Go to her website, laracudari.com. Find a practitioner near you and get started on your own healing journey today. Thank you, Laura. And you can actually buy the book, Ever Books Are Sold, if you just want to go ahead and Google it that way. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. We will have you back yes. to talk more about this. Love it. All right, guys, have a beautiful day. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you loved today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? Our whole goal is bringing this education to the people who need it. And positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing and we so appreciate it. We'll catch you next time on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.